Hello, my name is Charles Johnson, and this is the Alabama Entrepreneur Podcast. Alabama entrepreneurs telling their stories, giving us a better understanding of the small business experience. Lindsay Booth, owner of Alabama Trainware, is a purveyor of sustainable heirloom quality wooden utensils or trainware. All of her wares are handmade by her from ethically sourced local hardwoods. By nature, that makes her a purveyor. However, Alabama Trainware is about so much more. You can see and purchase all of her ware on alabamatrainware.com. All right, Lindsay, thank you for taking the time to do this interview. Why did you name your business Alabama Trainware? So the name is actually very important. From a business standpoint, it's terrible because no one knows what trainware means, and they think you're saying treeware. They forget the end, so they can't find you on the internet. But I have a mentor in West Virginia, and he owns a business called Allegheny Trainware. And he has helped me since the beginning, and I asked him if he would feel robbed or honored that I named it Alabama Trainware in his honor. And he said, quote, I'd be just tickled to death. So Alabama Trainware it was. And your mentor, as I was researching your company, Stan Jennings is his name. Mm -hmm. He mentored you. You were doing something else and you decided to go into this. Mm -hmm. There was a reason, if you'll explain that. So was it important to get started in this business by having a mentor? I would say yes, but I, I met Stan actually before I had the other business even. When we were living in West Virginia, probably about four or five years ago, I woke up one day and decided I'd like to learn how to carve spoons because sometimes I just want to learn something new. And I got on Google and I found Stan and I reached out and asked if he would be willing to teach me how to carve spoons. And I didn't really know what I was going to stumble upon. What I found when I got to his, what I'll call homestead, was a huge shop where he is cranking out 200 plus utensils a day. And he has mechanized that and he has employees now. Everything has his fingerprint on it still yet, but he still knows the very traditional hundreds of years old art of hand carving a spoon on a what's called a spoon mule or shaving horse with the hand tools and all of that. He's a highly accomplished artist. He's received accolades all over the East Coast. He's very, very talented. So for me to have the quality that I wanted to have when I decided to turn it into a business, there was nothing more important than having him as a mentor because he knows not only the business side, but also the art. And so, yes, I would say it was vital to have him and still is. And I guess he took you through the process of how all of these things were made from beginning to end. So can you take us through that process, starting from purchasing supplies all the way to the end user? Yeah, so what a lot of people don't know is when you go by and I'm not talking Lowe's here, I'm talking at a local sawmill. When you go buy that gorgeous piece of hardwood that's perfectly square, 
So there's actually a lot of waste in milling um, and beautiful wood that I couldn't make a cabinet out of, but I could make a spoon out of. So normally all of this wood would be just burned. Hundreds of years old trees, beautiful wood, all just burnt up into smoke. And so I actually use that for the most part, unless I have to do a very large volume. I try not to purchase wood at all, not only because it makes sense from a business standpoint, but mostly just it's that sustainability. And I really feel like that benefits the environment and helps to reduce the waste. So I go to the mills about once a month. There are a couple that I go to and I get whatever they have. I have no idea what I'm gonna get from any given time. I know what I can and can't use, but I don't know what I'm gonna have access to. And then let's say you ordered, what would you like to order today, Charles? Well, let's order a soup spoon. Okay, so Charles wants to order a soup spoon. If you have no preference on what your wood is, because sometimes you don't get a choice, I kind of look at what I've got and I have to take into account, I may have a beautiful piece of wood that's half brown and half lawn with red stripes through it. But if I put a spoon, a spoon <clears throat> pattern on that, I miss all of the pretty stuff and it just looks like regular wood. So you have to be very aware of the grain and your pattern that you're using, which are all hand drawn by what people want. Once I find one that the pattern fits nicely in the with the wood grain, then I'll trace it and I'll cut it out on a bandsaw. And then that's what you call a spoon blank. It's if you just trace the spoon. And then from there, I'll put it into my, what's called the shape horse, and I'll mill out the spoon well first. And then I, I can use a gouge for that, but more often I use a ball gouge on an angle grinder to kind of speed that up. And then I'll sand it out with three different sandpapers so that it's smooth. And then I'll start on the outside of the spoon, shaping it. I'll cut some off the handle with the bandsaw and then I'll go into shaping with the belt sander. And so from then I get it smooth with craft paper, like a paper bag because that is, the, it's just abrasive enough to do what's called burnishing it. It really just lays those fibers down. And so once that's done, I'll put my own spoon salve on it, which is a mix of beeswax from Bill's Honey Farm up in, I think it's Mooresville, and walnut oil that I render down myself. And then that's what kind of adds a waterproof protection. Walnut oil is about the only polymerizing oil and by that I mean it goes actually into the pores and it hardens and creates a protective finish. If people have nut allergies I'll do beeswax and mineral oil which kind of stays on the surface um, so it's not quite as protective but it's better than giving someone anaphylactic shock so <laughs> we meet that need if we need to. From then I take a little tag and I write your name on it and I write thank you on it and I make a little packet that is an envelope with my stamp on it, a business card, and then a small care card on how to care for it, and a coupon for my spoon salve if you don't already have that. Do you know how much it costs to get started in this business? Well, I tell my husband my next business will be, and he rolls his eyes, my next business will be garage sale wood shop because you can actually find a lot of great tools at a garage sale. Most of my tools that I started with actually came from there for probably collectively a hundred dollars. 
And of course, I've moved up as I've moved on. But to get started, it doesn't take much, you know, a gouge and a saw and you're good to go pretty much. And so a shoestring budget, because you're all about sustainability. So trying to find things that people were going to throw out, you saved, were able to use and create this business. Right. <laughs> I love it. What is your biggest expense? Tools, definitely. The more volume I'm having to move, it's a, it's a good problem, but garage sale tools aren't going to cut that. I'm selling enough that, again, no financing. You can pay for a whole wood shop doing this, but you still have to buy a whole wood shop to do this. Um, I'm needing bigger equipment, more heavy-duty stuff, not the stuff that you would get at Lowe's or Home Depot, grizzly ordering type of things. So that's that's expensive. I also believe in buying quality, so that's you know adds to the price. Um, and then there are just consumables, sandpaper. I go through a lot of sandpaper. And that's just something that you literally throw in the garbage when you're done. And that's frustrating, but there is no alternative at this time. So those things are my biggest expense. Does it matter what you're making, which helps you determine what wood you use? Like a spoon that you may use for soup versus a fork? Not too much. There are some particular, I was working on a custom order today, and there are some woods that have beautiful grain patterns, but it's actually softwood and hardwood mixed together. And so when you try to do a small pattern in that or, or gouge it out to be a type of spoon, it just blows up on you. It turns into mulch. And so there are instances like that, but generally, if I can use it, I can use it. And people say, oh, I have this tree stump. Can you make this into a spoon? No. <laughs> a lot of times it's, um, maybe it's oak. You know, we think that's a hardwood. They use it in whiskey barrels. But actually oak has, it's, has very open grain. And it will do something called ebonize. If you put something acidic on it and then touch it to metal, it'll turn black like ebony wood. So that's cool if you want to turn your spoon black, but if you don't know that's going to happen and suddenly the spoon I made for you gets black spots all over it, you're not going to be very happy. So I don't use oak for that reason. Cedar, toxic, and you don't want your food to taste like cedar. Poplar is too soft. So there are all of these kind of rules that some woods are very toxic and some woods, they don't hold up. So based upon that, that's how I choose what wood I'll use. You have these amazing ideas. So I want to turn now and talk about the Front Porch Farm Stand. Your website has an entire link for it. So what is this all about and why are you so passionate about it? Well, what it started was, you should see my garden. It's awful. It's the best looking grass patch in the yard. Terrible weeds. My cucumbers are pathetic. My tomatoes are beautiful. And I thought, man, if I was back in West Virginia, because I know people there, I could take my tomatoes to the office and I know somebody's going to bring their cucumbers and we could trade. So it started as that simple. Of I would love to be able to trade my produce with someone because I'm never going to eat all of these tomatoes. 
So then I kind of got started thinking about the little free library concept. Take what you need, leave what you can. And I thought, okay, I could just put some boxes out in the front, at the front of the driveway. But I've had so many wonderful encounters on my front porch with customers picking up their utensils. And I find out what that utensil meant to them and why they chose that one and, and who it reminded them of and the story from their life. And, and my front porch has served as this hub of information and relationship building. And so I got to looking and the history of the front porch, it actually started here in the South and it became an architectural movement because what started out as a way to escape the hot summer indoors with no air conditioner became a place to meet your, your neighbors and your community. And that's the meaning of community. So with technology and our lives, that's all gone away. So I thought, how about instead of having it out at the edge of the yard where it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, let me make this awkward and bring it on my front porch. You very much have to invade our property to participate. You can look right in my living room window if you want to. Wouldn't recommend it. But it's just, it's just a way to kind of bring that back. And I've met my neighbors. Somebody dropped me off chocolate chip cookies today. Thank you. And so it's important to me, as, especially as a newcomer to the town, this is how I'm meeting the people who, when my daughter has to go to the hospital, I can call you and ask if you can watch my son. Or I'm in the middle of a recipe and I've run out of milk. Can I borrow some? This is how you do that. And so especially everyone down here pretty much is a transplant. No one. You can't find people who were born and raised here other than yourself, I know. But it's that's kind of just how why it's so important to me because it's, it very much impacts my life. Well, I think it's an incredible opportunity for people to get out and get to know their neighbors. And we're missing that. I mean, you know, it's hard to know what your next door neighbor is doing a lot of times. And it's hard to make that commitment. You know, you go to work, you come home and you know, that's, that's it. You don't really interact a lot of times. There's so much activities with kids and, all those things. So I think it makes a great opportunity to really get out and meet your neighbor. Anybody that's hearing this really should get on your website and take a look at what you're doing. And you also have the design, if people want to design and put this really on their front porch, you know, I highly recommend it. It's incredible. So I, I, I love that whole concept. Lindsay, you decided to become a member of the Madison Chamber of Commerce. Why was that important to you to be a part of that organization? Well, I live in Madison City, therefore obviously Madison County, and they are, I look at that as a hyper-local resource for small businesses. They're there to serve, they're there to connect you, so why would I not join? You know, it just made sense to join, especially again, as a newcomer. Were you part of the chamber in West Virginia? No, it was not nearly as active or small business oriented as the Madison one. And going to events, you kind of have to get involved with an organization in order to get benefits out of it. Now you have a two and a four year old 
So it can be very challenging to go to some of the events that they may have. Have you found it difficult to go to these events? Mostly because of COVID. They pretty much stopped all of their networking and events right before I moved here. And they haven't quite picked up as much just yet. Okay. Do you plan to get more involved as they start opening up more and more? Oh, definitely. Do you remember how much it costs to join the chamber for yourself? I think it was, I want to say $250 for a year. And okay. that is, it, it's, it's annually. That, that's the only option that you have. Now, you have a great website. Thank you. <laughs> Who's your host? It's through Square. So, through Square. <laughs> and... Why, do you know why you decided on Square? The card reader. Everybody knows Square. And that was, I would like to eventually do a few select markets. I'm very honored to receive multiple market invitations a month. Very sad to have to always turn those down because when I'm trying to keep up with orders, and I've been dabbling in small batch wholesale as well, and it's just me, there is no building up inventory for these markets. So, but I want to get there. So Square just seemed like the most, I'm the most technologically inept 27 year old on God's green. And so it seemed like the most simple stupid for me to be able to not totally mess it up. Well, the pictures look great that you have on there. And people just click on it and they go to order it. And then there's also special instructions that people can put on there. So it really pretty much covers what you're looking for. So it was pretty easy to upload these pictures and pretty straightforward? Yes, that's easy. The, the trickiest part, and I think it's unique to Alabama Trainware, is I post something new every day. I have not missed a day since I started, I think, 156 days ago. I'm not that diligent to update my website because I have found that most of my orders, probably 98% of my orders come through Facebook and Instagram messages or comments. No one uses the website. So it's just kind of more of, I think will be useful when I'm using the cards or, or people want to pay at an event. So it is easy in that, in that regard. One thing that I don't like about it is my SpoonSav has a walnut oil in it that if someone has a nut allergy, that can be a problem. And so when you order, I can't differentiate nut or no nut, but it sends a disclaimer saying nut allergy warning. I always worry that people don't see that because they're just going to think it's a spam from my business. And so... That scares me to death. And then the other thing is I can't control, you have to say it will be ready on X date. I never know. You know, I try to turn things around within two weeks, but when you pay, you fall into the queue, wherever that is. And there may be three wholesales in front of you, so it may be three weeks sometimes. So I, I it sends a disclaimer with the nut allergy thing saying, Please wait for the email from me. Don't listen to this date. But I still have people show up at my door and be like, hey, I'm here to pick up. I'm like, just a second. Let me run over here for a minute. So that's that's been my only complaint of Square. Okay. And so most people are seeing what you're putting on Facebook and Instagram, and they message you. Yes. Wow. I mean, that's pretty impressive, don't you think? 
I don't know. It's kind of frustrating, but it's nice because I it's frustrating because I don't understand social media and how it works. So I would like more people to be able to see. And the website would be nice if everyone used that because then it would just automatically generate the queue. But it, it's good how it is. How much did it cost to put that website together? The website's free. I do know that. They take a percentage, like a card fee, you know, um, which may be 2.5% for every transaction. I'm not sure. And then I think I had to pay $20 a year for my web address to not go alabamatreenware.square.com. I mean, that seems very reasonable. Oh, yeah, it is. Very. And it is a very user-friendly yes. website. Because if people go on there, they're going to like your website. Yeah, you can figure it out, too. Very easy. Are you always going to be retail, or have you thought about wholesale? So I'm doing a few wholesale, I, have, I guess you'd say a few wholesale accounts right now. Wholesale is a double-edged sword for the small business. You, if, For those that don't know how that works... You sell your pro you sell your items at a percentage of what your retail price is, but you move a lot more volume. So while you're making less per item, you're still making more money than you would have ever made because you're moving that much. You also have to factor in if you would have done a market or something like that. There's fees for entering that. It's all day, so you're paying food, potentially travel, lodging. So that kind of balances out. The problem. I have with the wholesale is again it's just me and as much as I appreciate my shop owners taking a liking to my items and bestowing the honor of displaying them in their store I never want to I'll say forget about my very small but loyal following on social media I always want to participate in that direct to buyer relationship but so I'm very selective about the wholesale accounts that I take on and and they have to kind of have that same I go and I check out their shop and all of that to make sure that it's a it's a good fit so that's that's how I've played that so far now typically in every place is different but Typically, a, a retailer is going to need markup of 100%. So generally, they would buy it from you for 50%, and then they retail it for 100%. If they buy it for 5 they sell it for 10 So you, you have to watch your margins, too, trying to figure out what that means for you, plus the added work. Did you have to learn on how to become a wholesaler? So the first thing I did when I was approached was I called Stan, my mentor. And he has been doing wholesale for many, many years now. And he's the one who shared those sentiments that I found to be true about more work, but more money than you would make. You still come out even if you would participate in a market. That was my first call to decide if I was going to, to go down that route. I also, at this time, I don't have an order minimum. If you are reselling, I consider you wholesale just because 
if I require you to order 100 pieces, that's 100 pieces that I have to make. So I think it's a much more comfortable relationship when you can say, I'm out of this, can you make me five more? Instead of you have to order your whole year's worth right now. I think that's just better for both of us because you're having less overhead and you're having less inventory and I'm having less to get out the door at once. So that's that's been a really good thing for me up to now. Stan, your mentor, he's given you some incredible information to go by. Yes. So that's a, that's just a fantastic for you. Yeah. So. And he's so happy. He's a, he's a natural teacher. He's so happy to pass down. He's 73, I think, to pass down what he's learned in 33 years of doing this. His story's incredible. His life is incredible. His intellect is incredible. And the fact that he can articulate that to a newcomer to the industry is amazing. Well, and you sound a lot like Stan. You sound like a 20-something Stan. That's a high compliment. <laughs> I'm in the talks with Burrett on the mountain currently to become a folk instructor up there at their folk school. I have a class coming up in September where you can actually build with me my front porch farm stand. Is there anything you would have done differently when you were first starting out? So I did not expect as many people to like my humble spoons. I was just, I call it my accidental business. It's really nice when you can take something that you enjoy and other people appreciate it. That being said, I was not at all prepared to have a business doing it. So I think if I had it to do over, I would take what I make and I would make an inventory so that I could fulfill orders faster and participate in some of the markets that I'm invited to. I, that would be my one thing I would change is that I had an inventory before I, I released it to the public. Lindsay, is there anything else that you want to add to this interview that you want people to know? Just if you like what you see, reach out to me. I love those personal connections. I would love to meet anyone who's interested in what I do. And I hope to see front porch farm stands on your front porches because again, my cucumbers are not looking good. You need some cucumbers. Yes, I need some cucumbers. <laughs> well, it has just been a great joy for me to do this interview because I've learned a lot. I love your products. Thanks for coming in and I appreciate it. There you have it. Another great Alabama entrepreneur, Lindsay Booth, owner of Alabama Treenware. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to enhance your experiences throughout the great state of Alabama, I urge you to seek out locally owned small businesses. They will certainly increase your happiness. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening.